Good morning. This morning we are reading from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're studying Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Ephesus, in the middle of the first century, uh, it was a family of churches that he had helped establish years earlier. And, and I've called the title of our series this winter, Grace Emerging. We're looking through this letter to see how God's grace transforms the church and then emanates outward into the community and into the world. We wrapped up the first three chapters a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we saw how chapters one through three were really about Paul exploring the theology of grace, the doctrines of grace, that amazing content, that wonderful wisdom that he shared about how God the Father predestined us to belong to him, how God the Son redeemed us in human history, and how God the Spirit indwells each of us who follow Jesus Christ. That was the theology of grace, but here in chapter four, he begins to transition, as he does in all of his letters. In chapter four, Paul will begin to talk about not so much the theology of grace, but the practices of grace in the church, the habits of living by grace, a lifestyle of grace in the church as a family of faith. And that's the transition here. We're moving from theology to practice. And what we call that is practical theology. Have you heard of that expression before? Practical theology is simply this. What we believe is practiced in how we live. If you go to our own website, you go to deeprunchurch.org, and and you look into our history and our beliefs and, and our vision, you'll discover a mission statement And that mission statement is is essentially uh, that in in everyone we interact with and everybody that's a part of this congregation, we pray that God will develop in each of us a gospel-centered identity, an identity that is based on grace. And that that identity, that new identity, will lead each of us and all of us together toward a practical theology, that our new identity informs our thinking, our decisions, and our actions so that we will mature as Christ's disciples and ultimately be faithful stewards of all that he's entrusted to us as a church. You can look at that in more detail on the website. But let's boil that down into some, uh, a simpler question. If you are saved by grace, how do you live by grace? If we're saved by grace, how do we live by grace? Paul's first answer to that question was this by pursuing unity. We practice a lifestyle of grace together. We live according to what we believe 
primarily by pursuing unity. It is the first point he makes when he starts to talk about practical theology in his letter to the Ephesians. There's not a lot of unity in the world right now, is there? There's not a lot of unity in our own country. And let's be honest, let's point the finger at ourselves and nobody else. There's not a lot of unity in the global church or in the American church. The conflicts that you read about in the news, they're right here in the church, aren't they? The pandemic and everything that happened from 2010 to 2020 proved that there's a lot of disunity in the church. Many years ago, the church that loved Becky and me through our college years, the church that discipled us and nurtured us, the church, the church that fostered me really coming alive into my faith and feeling called by God uh, for a life of serving Christ in, in, in vocational ministry, we watched shortly after our college years that church begin to disintegrate and nearly had a 50-50 split. And it was heartbreaking. We were in our early 20s. We were just starting in life. I, I felt called to seminary. And we watched this church that had nurtured us at such uh, an impressionable time in our lives. We watched that church fall apart. Thankfully, it did not split. And it's still together today. But there were people that we loved and respected and looked up to who were, were, were at odds with each other, and those relationships were permanently damaged. It was like watching a divorce. It was like watching your parents get divorced. There's a lot of disunity even in the church. We just have to acknowledge that up front. Now, we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 2 that a healthy church builds unity on the foundation of grace. Where God forgives us and we extend forgiveness to one another. Where God saves us by his grace and not by our own works and morality. And where we view each other with a non-judgmental eye. That's the foundation of a healthy church. It's a foundation of grace. We've, we've already, you can look in our recordings over the last couple of months. But practically, how do we do that? It's one thing to say we should build a foundation on grace as a church, and then we'll be healthy. Well, great. That sounds really good. But how do we make that theology practical? How do you build a healthy church on the foundation of grace? Well, I would like to suggest that it should begin with a confession that we have not pursued unity. We have not pursued, I don't mean specifically us, Deep Run Church, I'm speaking in general. I don't believe Christians generally have pursued unity. Christian unity, I mean. Not as much as we've pursued political unity, denominational unity, ethnic unity, tribal unity, uh, as Chrissy was showing the kids, the unity of those who love the summer and, and summer sports and the unity of those who love the winter and winter sports. With the World Wide Web and social media, I can go online and find an affinity group for anything that I like in my life. If I want to find a Lego affinity group of people who are passionate about Legos or ice hockey or anything, I will find those people. And what I'm saying is that we have pursued those types of unity with far more passion than we have pursued Christian unity. And some of it is silly, like the difference between boogie boards and sleds. But some of it is far more serious. Like can Christians who vote differently and look different 
and have different types of experiences actually worship together. That's where it really becomes important. So Christian unity must outweigh the pursuit of all other types of unity. Even even types of unity that are worthwhile and good and productive, nonetheless, Christian unity must outweigh them all. And as we read the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 and transition into the second part of Paul's famous letter, we're going to talk about how God saved us in unity. We're going to talk about the unity that God has already given to us and the unity that God has commanded us to pursue right now and for the rest of our lives. And we're going to talk about the unity that God sacrificed so that we could be unified to him and to one another. Those simple ideas today, those three, the unity that God gave, the unity that God commanded, and the unity that God sacrificed. All right, so the unity that God has already given to us, to all Christians, is the background of what we're reading today. Ephesians 4 is built upon chapters 1 through 3. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have received. As always, when Paul writes the word therefore, we should wake up and go, what does he mean? Therefore, in reference to what? Well, therefore refers back to you read chapters two and three, therefore refers back to the unifying, reconciling power of the cross. For instance, Paul had written in chapter two, just a summary really quick, that Christ himself is our peace, who has made, he was talking about Jews and Gentiles, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He was talking about Gentiles and Jews, uh, a radical separation and division throughout history that had been resolved and reconciled on the cross. Paul also says In verse 1 of chapter 4, he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. You see that in a few of his letters. He's literally in prison, probably in Rome. A prisoner of the Lord is an important uh, title that he gives himself. He's reminding the Ephesians that he's suffering for what he believes. Now, the obvious thing is, well, he's suffering because he believes in Jesus. Yes. But more specifically... This part of the letter and what he's telling them about unity, he's saying he is in jail for his belief in the unity of all Christians. He is suffering for his fraternization, his association, his ministry to the Gentiles. Read about it in the book of Acts, the the, the last several chapters of the book of Acts. Paul is in prison for his ministry as a Jew to the Gentiles and his belief that in Jesus Christ, that that. Um, uh, that disunity had been resolved and reconciled. So he's, he's literally in prison for his belief that they should be unified. Jews and Gentiles, and later on as we read this letter, you'll see in other divisive dynamics, men and women, parents and children, husbands and wives, even those who are enslaved and those who are free, Paul is gonna say in Ephesians that they are all one 
in God's family. And that's very contrary to the world's customs and the world's social structures. The world doesn't think that way. But Paul went to prison because he was convinced that's what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. Remember what Robert Frost said? Something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And I've said before that using Paul's words, the gospel wants that wall down between us. The cross unites those who would otherwise be adversaries in this world. The cross unites those who would otherwise be adversaries in America. And so when you think of how Paul would say, I want you to now live a life worthy of the calling for which you, to which you have been called. He's saying, I want you as a church with this name, this, this name of Christ attached to you now, this name of Christ that defines you. I want you to live a life worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. I want you to live a life worthy of that name by pursuing unity. Now, how does a church pursue unity? Verse 2, he begins by saying, with all humility and gentleness. Humility is not popular in our world. It wasn't back then. We're Christians. Christianity's been around for a couple of thousand years, but the ancient Greeks and Romans did not venerate humility. Jesus made humility a virtue in the Gentile world. So it's a big deal when he says to them, you pursue peace by being humble and being gentle. We don't see that in our day either. When we look at our politics, humility is not a virtue or a value. When you look at show business, when you look at competitive uh, international sports, humility is not a value, but it is in the kingdom of God. It is in the church. Actually, the, uh, the civil rights activist and devout Christian John Perkins, in a recent interview with World Magazine, said this, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. It's pretty hard to find this quality on display today. Now listen to this. Our culture applauds people who are brash and arrogant. The self-promoter gets the most attention and the most encouragement. But God intends for his friends to be marked by gentleness. Gentleness, humility. But he goes on, there's more. He also says we build unity with patience. Did I put the right slide up there? Yeah. He says we are to do it with patience. You know, the word for patience in the original Greek language for this letter, John Stott, the commentator, describes it as long-suffering. Patience is long-suffering, I quote, towards aggravating people. I want you to think of that as a parent of small children. I want you to think of that as a parent of aging children. I want you to think of that as somebody who has to work on a team with people that are different, to, they're hard to work with wherever you work, all right? Think of, think of patience as long-suffering toward aggravating people, because that's what it is. Or we wouldn't call it patience. We don't need patience with people that are easy to work with, who we really like and enjoy and get along with all the time. 
We need patience for people who, for whatever reason, really aggravate us. But there's more. He says, bearing with one another in love. Okay, the Greek word for bearing with another person, it meant to put up with them. Right? When you say, I put up with so-and-so, that's typically not a compliment. But it's what Paul says achieves unity in the church. There's nothing glorious about this. He's literally telling Christians, hey, put up with one another. It means to tolerate one another, John Stott wrote. Mutual tolerance. Not the kind of tolerance where one person has to completely give up who they are and the other person can just be whoever they want to be. Mutual tolerance is the kind of bearing with one another in love that Paul is talking about. And he goes further, and when you look at verse 3, he wraps it up by saying that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word there for eager, the word Paul originally used, it meant to be zealous. It meant to take pains and to make every effort in seeing that something gets done. Be eager, be zealous, make every painful effort to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of our mutual peace with one another. So to conclude all of these little words, Paul is saying this. This is how we pursue unity. This is how we live out the name of Jesus Christ practically with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance, we become zealous for unity. That's practical theology. That's living by grace. And the reason Paul can say this, the reason the church should pursue unity is God has already given it to us. It is a heavenly reality that we have to work out practically in time and space together. Because he goes on to say in verses 4 and 5 and 6, and some scholars think this was one of the earliest Christian creeds. Maybe it was even sung, but it's very poetic. This is why we should pursue unity. He says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. You see that? God has already given us the unity that we need. There's one Spirit who has unified us. There is one Lord Jesus who has died for us. And there is one Father who has adopted us all. We're part of the same spiritual family. Now, even though the visible church in the world and in our society, like a biological family, is dysfunctional, and it has vastly divided the church, even so, God's people in his eyes are still one family, right? Like biologically speaking, you may never talk to your sibling again, but you're still, they're still your sibling. Blood, there's still the blood connection, right? And, and so Christians get into conflicts with one another, but from God's perspective, we're still a family. 
Despite all of that dysfunction, God's people in his eyes are still one family. That's the heavenly reality, no matter what it looks like on earth in the church. So that heavenly unity, remember how Paul said in chapter one, we've been saved and put with Christ in the heavenly places? That those heavenly places, our unity is there. That heavenly unity becomes our motivation to resist disunity right now. What is true in heaven becomes our motivation to work out right now. Our theology becomes practical when we remember that Jesus on his cross killed our hostility, chapter 2. So, the Bible commands Christians to painstakingly pursue unity. It's not just something that Jesus did for us, that God keeps in heaven for us. It is something we now work out as he says in another letter, working it out with fear and with trembling, because it's not easy, right? I am afraid and I tremble at trying to put up with people that drive me crazy. The Bible commands Christians to painstakingly pursue unity, and I would say maybe even more than pursuing correct doctrine more so than pursuing evangelism or missions or social justice or you name it. I know that sounds weird coming from a pastor. Just listen, listen. None of those good things will progress effectively without unity. None of them can progress without unity. Behold, the psalmist said, we read this together this morning, behold how how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God blesses, God establishes, God promotes his kingdom through the unity of his children. And so Paul can say confidently in chapter 4, verse 3, that we should be eager to maintain that unity, the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of what? Correct theology, social justice, missions and evangelism, worship, what, what? through the bond of peace. It says through the bond of peace that we maintain our unity in Christ. Nothing authenticates the gospel more than reconciliation. Nothing authenticates and promotes Christianity in the world and in our community more than Christians painstakingly pursuing peace with one another. And I know that it's not popular. It's not sexy. It's not going to get a lot of likes on social media. But Jesus said, that's how the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So I think the takeaway here, the practical theology encouragement would be to pursue a passion for Christian unity that outweighs your personal preferences. As Chrissy said to the kids, do you prefer winter sports or summer sports? We, we have all sorts of preferences and stories and, and ways to identify ourselves. And what I'm saying, it's not that none of that is important. Most of it is very important but not as important as pursuing Christian unity together. Our friend Erwin Ince 
a few years ago wrote that when you look at the American church, when you look at black churches and white churches, you look at Democratic Christians and Republican Christians and all the different generations that are within the American church, he, sa- he, he calls them all ghettos. Listen to this. He says, they are all too comfortable in their own ghettos of cultural, religious, political preferences. And so he writes, we must realize that getting out of our ghettos isn't free. It will cost you. You will have to examine your preferences. Notice he didn't write, you must examine whether you want to be a Christian or not, since you can't get along with everybody. You need to deconstruct your faith since you can't get along with it. He says, you need to examine your preferences, your personal preferences. He writes, make no mistake, getting out of the ghetto is uncomfortable, but it's close to God's heart. Or as a song that we sometimes sing, uh, uh, the Getty song, um, there's this line in it, to prefer one another. Right? We, pref- we sing this phrase every once in a while, we prefer one another. I think that's an important phrase to remember. Again, it's not very poetic or musical, but we remember that phrase, to prefer one another more than what we each individually prefer. I must prefer you more than what I personally prefer. That maintains unity. I gotta tell you, I used to be a music, some of you know, I used to be a director of music for many years. And some of our music leaders can tell you this. Let me tell you, one of the biggest engines of disunity in a church is everyone's diverse musical preferences. I mean, being a music director in a church? Good grief. The things you have to put up with, I like this, I hate that, I hate the drums, more violin, please. I don't like Bill Gaither. I like Hill songs, just old songs, new songs. That song's not diverse enough. That song's too, too culturally homogenous. Man, I had to learn how to put aside my, I was a trained classical musician. I have taste. <laughs> I had to put that aside I had to put that aside for the sake of my brothers and sisters who would say things like, I don't like that hymn. You know, like, like I, I had to learn how to put aside my preferences and swallow my pride and learn how to prefer people for whom Christ died. And we built a music ministry around that idea. You don't throw your taste away. You don't erase your individuality. But you have to change it. Your preferences can't be number one in the family of God. I am not kidding you. This happened this morning. A friend of mine, an older pastor from the Midwest who loves to encourage younger pastors. I'm not young, it's just that he's older than me. He sends me a prayer and listen to this prayer. This literally just came in this morning. Oh Lord, as I enter your church today, called and anointed by you, may I lovingly admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and get this, be patient with them all. You don't, do you not think that the health of the church requires the patience of everyone? 
A healthy church is a church where not just the paid staff are being patient with everybody. A healthy church is where all of us put aside our preferences to bear with one another patiently. I must prefer you more than what I personally prefer. And that's what maintains unity. You and I have to sacrifice whatever unity is clouding the grace of God in the church. You and I have to sacrifice whatever type of cultural solidarity, whatever type of oneness clouds the grace of God in the church. We must either reject certain types of solidarity completely, if they're unbiblical, or we must carefully subordinate them to Christian unity. Because Ephesians has already shown us the grace of God is the only thing that unites sinners. In a broken world, political unity will not unite sinners who are adversaries. In a fallen world, there is no type of ethnic unity or cultural unity that will ever unite a bunch of sinners. And you see that unity for a fleeting moment and then it's gone, right? Only the grace of God unifies sinners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, he wrote, we are bound together by faith, not by experience. This is very important as we are more prone to seek unity and solidarity to people who we like, to people who agree with us, to people who can relate to us. And of course, like, like my best friends are people I can relate well to, or they wouldn't be my best friends. But Bonhoeffer said, you know what ultimately unites Christians? It's their faith, not their experiences, not their shared preferences, not similar personalities, not the same stories of suffering. That can ultimately unite us because I will never fully understand how some of you have suffered. So that can, the shared suffering can ultimately unite us. So the mentality of saying to yourself, I can't worship with people who didn't vote like I voted. I can't worship with people who haven't suffered like I have suffered. If Christians think like that, the world will never know that Jesus sent us. There was a perfect unity. There was a perfect unity that God sacrificed to draw us all together. Jesus, the night before he was executed, prayed this beautiful prayer, the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Here's just a portion of it. While he was sweating drops of blood in deep anxiety over being separated from his heavenly father, he prayed for us that we would be unified. He said that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And when you think of all of the Christian denominations in the world, uh, when you think of all the discord and disunity in the American church, you have to ask yourself the question, was Jesus' prayer ever answered? Father, I pray that they may be one, and we look around and we're like, we, we can't even get along with each other. Did, did God the Father ever answer Christ the Son's 
prayer. As a young man, I said, no, not yet. And now I'm realizing it's, it's no end yes. There's a future sense in which he hasn't answered it yet. Perfect unity will take place when Jesus returns. But there's another sense in which he absolutely has answered Christ's prayer, I promise you, because Paul believed it was true. Paul was able to say that God had answered Jesus' request for unity because he was able to say that on the cross, Jesus killed our hostility and breaking down that dividing wall between us all. It was in death that Jesus preferred us over that perfect unity that he had with the Spirit and his Father from all eternity. I mean, can you believe that? Perfect, eternal unity broken on the cross. Jesus preferred us over his unity with the Father and the Spirit. He sacrificed that unity so that we may be unified. So now you prefer, you put up with, you tolerate, you forgive the Christians you don't want to. Christian unity must outweigh the pursuit of all other types of unity. So pursue a passion for Christian unity that outweighs your personal preferences. The church will never achieve perfect unity now. We have to adjust our expectations. It's not going to happen in this lifetime. But we're commanded to practice unity. And we will see progress as we practice it, as we put up with one another, as we forgive one another, as we become zealous, not idolatrous, zealous for peacemaking. And remember when you get discouraged, because we will get discouraged from time to time. We will. We'll look at one another and go, I don't want to worship with that person again. We will get discouraged. We will, we will be frustrated when, when, when our leaders let us down. You'll be frustrated when I and the leaders let you down and you'll let each other down. It will happen. But when that happens and when you say it's so hard to put up with Christians, when we, when we have those discouraging moments, remember, remember what fulfilled Jesus' prayer before he died on the cross. What fulfilled Jesus' prayer for our unity was not our peacemaking. It was his. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is hard to put up with each other. Father, we confess that it is difficult to be patient. We have so many good preferences that we enjoy that mean so much to us. Father, help us to see it from your perspective. Help us to see it as Paul lays it out before us. Help us to only surrender and kill the preferences that truly are sinful, that are truly uh, dysfunctional and corrosive. But the ones that are good, Father, help us to subordinate them to our overall unity. Help us to remain individuals but to pursue that one faith, one baptism that you, our one Lord, has saved us into. 
And so, Lord, we sing about that now, and we begin to practice your grace in our lives and our church. Amen.